Hello again everyone and welcome back to The Longest Night. We are a Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon show on the Podbreed Network. My name is Rob and I've seen every single episode of Game of Thrones at least half a dozen times and I've read Fire and Blood by George R.R. Martin. My name is Lizzie. I've also seen every single episode of Game of Thrones, but I haven't read Fire and Blood by George R.R. Martin. And my name's Jay. I have seen every single episode of Game of Thrones. I have read Fire and Blood by George R.R. Martin, and I've also read all five books in the Song of Ice and Fire series. If you want to, you can find us on Twitter. We are at LongestNightGOT. That is at LongestNightGOT. Our title music was written and provided by Edward Thomas. You can find all of his available work in the description. I'll also post a link to our Twitter page there too. Uh, okay, time to time, time to crash a coronation, I suppose. <laughs> this week we are going to be discussing season one, episode nine of House of the Dragon, entitled "The Green Council." It was written by Sarah Hess and directed by Claire Kilner. It was first broadcast on the 16th of October 2022 to an audience of meh. meh, meh. We'll have to wait a few weeks to find out, maybe. (laughs) Anyway, Lizzie, the Green Council, uh, what do we think about that? I don't love it. I like it. Um, I think it has a lot of really strong moments in it, but... I think I was definitely feeling the lack of Damon and Rhaenyra this week. Mm. Just to elaborate on that a bit, I think the middle section with the chase was kind of predictable. And Mm. I also just, I don't know, I wasn't massively invested until the very end. So it felt like there was a lot of padding in between. Mm. The ending is fantastic. It's one of the best of the entire series. But yeah, everything before that just... Well, everything from the small council scene to that ending kind of dragged a bit for me. Mm. Uh, Jay, what about you? Up front, I'll say I enjoyed it a lot, but I do think it's the first episode where I felt like having read the book detracted from the episode a little bit. Mm. Um, Because it's the first time so far in this show where I've sat there going, ooh, I kind of wish they'd have done that a bit different i kind of wish they'd have been closer to the book there a little bit Mm. not that any of the changes were bad but they were distracting in a way that they haven't been previously um but that said it was a lot of fun still and there are some great moments in there and i do agree that the ending is very very cool and it's kind of set so it's a i think everyone came to this episode probably expecting it's game of thrones related to episode nines where it's all going to kick off and I feel like it's you. It's kind of a uh, it's a different strategy to kind of have it be a bit less over the top mm. in episode nine. To maybe I don't mm-hmm. know, maybe things will kick off a bit more in episode ten for a change. Mm. Um, but yeah, that, those are my thoughts. I um, I really like this one. I don't. I'm also the same as you two in the sense that I don't know if I love it. Um, but it's a really strong episode. I think where we're going to differ though, is that I'm more keen on everything that happens before the coronation. And the stuff with the coronation is fine, and I think it's pretty sound, but I kind of left left the episode sort of thinking, like, I kind of wish they hadn't 
done that. Like, mm-hmm. I just wish they'd withheld yeah. it. Just, you know, just, like, been a little... Like, held their nerve a little bit with regards to, like, a big showy scene. Like, just have it be one of those episodes that they've basically specialised in so far where there's no dragon action. It's all just kind of talking and it's all tense and it's all, you know, various threads of throughout King's Landing that we've, you know, we've followed them down. Uh, I Mm. think, you know, this is a really good episode about, like, um, the trolley problem where we've discussed this before with Game of Thrones where it's like, is it worth it to kill three or four people to save the lives of thousands or would you rather be responsible indirectly for thousands of deaths as opposed to being directly responsible for just a few. And it's about whether the... uh, And then I feel like the scene at the end actually does fit that theme quite a lot. But I kind of think that they did it because they got a bit anxious that it was the penultimate episode and, like, something with the dragon needed to happen. And so they did that. And, I I mean, I, I will say at the top of this episode that this is a a safe space away from the greens versus blacks nonsense that has now jumped out of the show and onto social media um this is a safe space we have no stands in here Uh, so if you want something that's (laughs) level-headed and stand free then by all means carry on listening um but yeah i thought it was a good episode that had a I, i think i liked the final scene but i kind of felt a little bit you know, in the cold light of day, it was a bit like, I kind of just wish that it had been more of a... something. The way that it was building tension through words alone um, was something I was really keen on. Uh, but the yeah. ending is what it is. So, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll press on. Who knows? I have made entire Some of the servants... I saw him last night before he... He told me he wished for Egon to be king. It is the truth, uttered with his own lips. His last words to me and I was the only one to hear it. And now he's dead. In the first part of the episode, in King's Landing, it is the morning after King Viserys' death. Queen Alicent Hightower is informed of the news and tells her father, Otto, that the king's dying wish was to have Aegon II replace him as heir. With Aegon missing, though, somewhere in the city, Otto wishes to delay the announcement of Viserys' death. He calls an emergency meeting of the small council, where it's revealed that most members have been secretly plotting to have Rhaenyra killed and Aegon installed as king upon the event of Viserys' death. This news shocks Alicent, and Sir Harold Westerling also resigns as head of the king, uh, head of the King's Guard in protest. Sir Lyman Beesbury chastises those who have been planning the coup, and is accidentally killed when Sir Criston Cole forces him to sit down. Talia, a maid to Alicent, is imprisoned with the rest of the housekeeping staff, while Princess Rhaenys discovers that she's been locked in her chambers. Otto dispatches the Cargill twins to find Aegon, while Aemond and Sir Criston aim to retrieve him 
as well. Uh, just at the top of the show, I just wanted to uh, give a quick shout out to John, who is uh, his Twitter handle is uh, x a b i l u t o n Zabilution or something like that. Um, I mentioned last week that the Cargill twins were played by the same person, but they're not. Um, they're just played by twins. <laughs> so, yeah. So I thought this as well. I don't know if the Wikipedia page was wrong or something, but I could swear I went on the Wikipedia page and saw one actor as both of them. Yes. <laughs> um, it may have been a, a change that's been made, but it's uh, Luke and Elliot uh, Titansaw or Titansaw or Titenser or something like that. I'm not quite sure how to pronounce that second name, but I just wanted to make that clear. Lizzie, this first part of the episode, this kind of, uh, you know, the camera kind of following this uh, this boy around as King's Landing wakes up. Uh, what, what did you make of that? Uh, very much brought to mind the winds of winter. Yes, the Rami Javadi, uh, Rami Javadi score, right? <laughs> yeah, it, well, the score and also the tracking shot of the kid because wasn't mm. there something similar at the beginning of Winter Winter? Yeah, the kid running down the stairs in front of the Scepter Baylor. Yeah, yeah, I I love that minimal piano piece. Have they actually? I'm not sure if they've released soundtrack to this yet. End of the season, I think it's coming. Oh, yeah, can't wait to hear that again. But yeah. <laughs> Really enjoyed it. Loved that slow tracking shot. Again, a bit of a complaint. There seems to be a problem with darkness at the beginning of this episode again. But, you know, it's one of those things. It's you kind of come to expect it. Modern telly, eh? I know. <laughs> I kind of like this stuff because this is how I imagine King's Landing to be before everybody wakes up. It's kind of like you're watching everything. You know, like, while we're in the various rooms that the nobility and the aristocracy hang out in. Mm. How does all of this get made? And, like, we get a little view into it here where you get the kitchen staff and the handmaidens and, like, the, you know, the, the help essentially waking up three hours before to ha- so that the, the, the queen can have her breakfast and things like this. And I think it... these Watching it on uh, through a second time, I think it kind of hammers home... The, the 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 brutality of that final scene that like you know we, we we get we spend a fair bit of time on the streets with common people in this episode yeah. and yeah, then they just true. get reduced to nothing in that mm-hmm. final moment when one of the aristocracy decides to do a big show um in front of the other group of uh, <laughs> the other group of nobles who've decided to crown this son uh, King Jay, what do you make of this this sort of this opening? Did it remind you of Winter Winter as well? It did, yeah. The way it was kind of the, the tracking something moving through um, while I, while well, in that case, everyone was busy somewhere, <laughs> and in this case, everyone's busy asleep, I guess. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's it was a really really fun opening scene, and yeah, once you've seen the rest of the episode, yeah, it's very obvious that the the, the makers are trying to draw our attention to uh, ordinary everyday people, the small folk, almost as if it's completely intentional <laughs> when they start getting killed. Yeah, um, yeah I, I liked it uh, a lot, and it kind of functions as a nice kind of breath. I think if you're watching, when when you go to rewatch this, it kind of will function as a nice kind of breather after the last episode mm. um, to kind of lead us into this uh 
to to kind of everything kind of changing after that kind of harrowing <laughs> those harrowing events well, I'm curious about what you both make of the small council scene because the first time through I watched it and I was a little bit confused about what the shock was um, across Alicent's face. I was like, oh, aren't they just kind of following through with what you like with what you also wanted to do? But then the second time watching it through, I realized that somebody refers to us at long laid plans. And so yeah. Alicent's kind of woken up in the morning and gone like, okay, King's dead. Uh, Aegon does sort of need to be on the throne. I, I do want this. I've, you know, I mean, she doesn't know that she's been groomed and pushed into this position, but like, Aegon I, yeah. on the throne is what I want. And so, yeah, that, that's what I want. And then she's like, right, okay, let's start planning. Let's make sure that we can get Aegon on the throne before anybody finds out and then otto's like oh well we've already taken care of this we've been thinking about it for 20 years um we're going to have rhaenyra killed um and that'll be the end of it and alison's like whoa 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 hang on a minute like (laughs) who 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 knows this and who doesn't and like i love how like the eyes around the room just start sort of like darting at each other like um well well he said to and i and i heard him but i didn't really and anyway (laughs) (laughs) And then Mr. Lyman Beesbury, who was named last week, is just sort of like, God, God, this is ridiculous. But Lizzie, the first time you watched the scene, did you like get that that was what Alison's shock was? Not necessarily that Otto wanted Egon to be on the throne, but that Otto had been planning this for ages behind her back to have Rhaenyra dispatched upon the event of the king's death. No, I didn't pick up on that. And I wonder if it is just that that one-two punch of like, it's like, you know, wait, what? You've been plotting all along. Wait, what? You want Rhaenyra killed? Like, it's just escalating that concern. Mm. I think the main thing I picked up on Alison was that she just looked crushed by the death of Cyrus, which I really, well, I didn't expect, but probably should have expected given how long they spent together. And, like, I just felt awful for her in that small council scene. Like, she's the person who was closest to Viserys in that room, but it barely even feels like she's in the room at all while all around her, the men are drawing swords and accusing one another of regicide and fatally slamming people's heads onto desks, and she barely gets (laughs) a word in edgeways. (laughs) I don't know about you, Jay, but I'm, like, loving this thing that, like, the, the characterization of Sir Kristen in this show has just been so fucking funny. Well, like, <laughs> you meet him and, like, he's with, you know, Rhaenyra and he's, like, he seems like a pretty cool guy. But then, like, he's just become this, like, really bitter murder machine who just, like, yeah. turns these little kids into criminals and, uh, yeah. and now, like, just seems to kill people at a moment's notice, right? It's like, if you piss him off even slightly, he just forgets his own strength. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. <laughs> all the time. I did. I, 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 I thought it was... A, it was a, I don't know whether I, where I land on the change. This whole... The, the whole council scene is one of the first fumbles for me. I, I actually think I actually like the, the Alison thing, because to me coming hot on the heels of her kind of making up with Rhaenyra yeah. um, in the last episode. To me, it's kind of... It sh- it, part of the shock is, like, her coming back down to Earth of, like, 
oh god no i've made this bed <laughs> i've made this bed over these years of being bitter and paranoid and conspiratorial i can't just can't just click that off now because other people have got the hand in it and so i liked that and it makes her more sympathetic as well it pulls her away from the kind of girl i'm gonna take the throne for my own family um but this scene was one I was really looking forward to from the very beginning because I always liked the idea of this 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 Green Council scene where they try and decide what to do, and the the I think it was a bit too quick, if that makes sense. Like in the in the in the book, it's described um, as they spend like a few days locked you know they find the king and it's locked down his body no starts rotting doesn't it and yeah they yeah. have to make a decision because the smell of his body becomes so strong that people start to ask questions so they have to make a decision and it takes a while and it all just seemed a little bit too quick for me um i was expecting like some classic game of thrones but in a bottle episode form of like you know dialogue back and forward and people establishing you know relationships and conflicts and all the rest of it and and it was all a bit too quick and a bit too like right okay now we're gonna have a weird chase scene (laughs) to go and find the new king which had some good bits about it that we'll get to but it just seemed like a bit of a distraction in what I thought was going to be a really tight and claustrophobic episode. I felt at one point I was kind of like, are they keeping this a secret? Because people are coming and going from this castle, <laughs> like yeah. seemingly at will. It was a bit a bit muddled. And I mean, I've been looking forward to Boosbury dying since episode one when he appears. Um, and I was like, see, so someone calls him Lord Boosbury and tells him to like calm down or something. And I was like, hey, um, first casualty. Um, yeah, I'm not really sure where I land on the, the death. I like the idea more of him trying to leave and Sir Kristen like catching up with him to drag him back and kill him. Um, yeah. it, but I do, I do agree that it's quite funny that Kristen Gold just doesn't seem to know his own strength. Plus also, you know, I'm pretty sure that TV has given us a warped perception of what having your head crushed would be like. I'm pretty sure not many of us would survive that from an even vaguely strong person no. onto a, like a onto like a marble ball in your temple. I also love um, the, the whole thing of like, should we get rid of the body? Like, no, nobody must leave this room until we sort this out. Okay, I guess yeah. I'll just stare at this corpse yeah. next to me then. <laughs> okay. I think this is kind of what the episode the point that it's trying to get to though isn't it that like it's you know Beesbury is just like another line of corpses on this mission where like there's just all it's just is it worth it to just leave this guy completely strip him of his dignity so that we can get what we want and set the plan out and I, I think I agree with you Jay that I would have liked this to be longer when I heard about what they were going to do with this episode and the fact that Rainier and Damon weren't going to be in it and like that sort of thing I thought it was going to be like first half an hour entirely in that small council chamber and yeah. then the secrets start, you know slowly starts to drift out but what it kind of does instead is it it's what I thought was going to be like not that Game of Thrones ever really did bottle episodes, but, like, something like a Game of Thrones episode where, like, they, they would dedicate half of an episode to something that like this, like, that the, you know, that the whole thing is kind of named after. You know how, like, in season four, they dedicate half an episode to Tyrion's trial, and in season six, they dedicate half the episode to Battle of the Bastards, and so on and so forth. Joffrey's wedding felt like it was most of an episode as, yes, as well. Uh, exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah at least half. Example. Yeah, 
Um, but it kind of turns more into an episode of like the thick of it, just with like the farce turned down a little bit. Where... I said um, the death of Stalin to you. Yes, yeah, it does. Who, which have was that also slightly, written by Inucci. Yeah. yeah, it does have that slightly farcical element to it, where like it reminded me very specifically of the thick of its specials. You know, um, Spinners and Losers, and the, the two hour long episodes that they did, where they have to pick a new uh, leader of the op- leader of the party overnight because there's that mm-hmm. weird oh, yeah. rumor leaking, and they drag in. Uh, is it Claire Ballantyne? the woman's name and they drag her in overnight to see if she wants to become the new party leader and then they they drag her into that cupboard and then they find out that she's got an addiction to online poker and at like four o'clock in the morning there's all those men in the corridor like well we can't pick her then (laughs) so who else are we gonna pick and so you get all these factions that split over the course of a really short space of time and i really Mm. liked that in the end um and i also think as well a lot of people online have sort of been saying like oh, um, there's a real problem with House of the Dragon at the moment. The the writer's room is too big because you have lines like, uh, you are the challenge, Aegon. Like, I I need to make you king, Aegon, in episode six. And then in this episode, you you have Alicent saying, you mean to put my son on the throne behind my back without telling me? And it's like, no, 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 no. Like, there's a lot of people really removing a lot of very important context here. As much as I kind of agree that I think a smaller writer's room makes for a more consistent and coherent tale overall. You know, I don't want there to be, like, 10, 15 writers over the course of the show. You know, if you keep it down to, like, five, six, seven people at most, then, you know, okay, pretty cool there. But first of all even though this episode is written by a different person to episode six, Ryan Condal and Miguel Sapochnik for his part this season, they oversee all of this. And this happened a lot with Game of Thrones towards the end, where a lot of people just presume that, like, when something appears on screen, that a lot of work... They assume that, like, a lot of work hasn't gone into it. It's like, oh, they clearly didn't think about this. They, They clearly didn't understand the the contradiction and it's like do you know how many times they film these scenes and how Mm. many times they rewrite the script and write the script again and then send an email out to someone get them to review it send it back redo it shoot it again if necessary like they these people who make this show they labor over every inch of this in a way that people who watch it could never understand and so for people to be on social media like um have you seen this inconsistency and it's like, no, it's not really an inconsistency. It is if you take out all the important context, though, which is that in episode six, Alison is wanting to put Aegon on the throne, and she's impressing upon him the important fact, well, that she believes it to be fact, because she's been groomed by Otto to believe it, which is that if she doesn't put Aegon on the throne, then her life and her kids' lives are in danger because, all Rhaenyra and Daemon are they're vicious and oh they're going to come and kill you and like you know so you would want to put your son on the throne in that situation but how many years have gone past since then eight nine years since episode six something like that and so now we're in a position where alicent finds out that her family don't just want Egon on the throne it's that they want Egon on the throne and rhaenyra to be killed that's the thing that she's annoyed about with them yeah. going behind her back it's not oh you know, she doesn't suddenly want Rhaenyra to be queen. She just doesn't want Rhaenyra to be killed because 
and again, this thing that kind of bugs me a little bit, and it, this happened a bit towards the end of Game of Thrones as well, where people thinking that characters in this world are on arcs, and we're going to go from point A to point B, and it's going to be a lovely, even semicircle trajectory. And it's like, no, these characters are quite similar to the ones in Game of Thrones, where they have two conflicting interests throughout, and the plot just happens to them. And it's like with Alison, it's her loyalty to her family up against her newfound and regenerated friendship and loyalty to a, a really close childhood friend. And that's the inner conflict with Alison in this episode. And I think it maybe could have been communicated a little bit clearer. But to say that it's inherently contradictory, I kind of disagree. And I think a lot of people are coming at this episode in a pretty pretty mean-spirited way. This is not one of my favourite episodes of the season by any means, but like to sit there and talk about it as if the people involved don't understand what they're doing and don't know what they're mm. doing, like they're stupid, like they don't understand it the way that we do, it's, it's ridiculous. They might not love it in the way that we do because for them it's work, whereas for us it's an interest, but they work so hard at this, and if it doesn't work for you, then that's fine, but you can't pick holes and call people evil because they did something that you d didn't like. Anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox. <laughs> like um, I just think this scene also, um, it opens up this trolley problem again, where it's like, you know, is it worth killing Rhaenyra and Damon to avoid all-out war? And the decision that Alicent kind of makes in this episode is sort of, but not really, because she's got a lot of conflicting information going on in her head where like she still yeah. kind of wants Aegon to be on the throne and she knows what that means but also at the same time she wants to make sure she wants to she's she reminds me a lot of actually latter day Tyrion where Tyrion was caught between a rock and a hard place with the the closer that he got to taking Daenerys to King's Landing the more and more he realized that Jamie and Cersei's lives were in danger and he tried to do the bloodless he tried to do the, the bloodless conquest thing that, and Alicent is in the same position where she's trying to do the bloodless succession thing and hopefully Rhaenyra will just go, oh yeah, sure, whatever. Yeah, yeah, we'll just hang about on Dragonstone. It's fine. No worries. <laughs> <laughs> one tiny bit for part one, which I didn't notice on my first watch, but um, on the rewatch, I noticed telling this prophecy, there is a beast beneath the boards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice foreshadowing. Yeah, she does a lot of talking, Helena. And oh, she does. This, yeah. she does. This episode is lousy with foreshadowing. Oh, boy. And a lot of it we can't discuss, but there's so much foreshadowing in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> Some oh, no. very cheeky ones. <laughs> yeah, well. at the end of the show, I think this is one that people are going to come back to and be like, what the fuck? How did I miss this? Because like, yeah, that's true. I know what's coming and there were certain shots where I kind of had to wait for Jay to message just to remind me of all of them because there were so many. There were some I picked out and I was like, uh, I see what you're doing there. But like, there were some that completely passed me by and that's how much of it, yeah, that's how much of it there really is. Um, Jay, I don't know if you have anything else about this first part of the episode. Just to say that I liked the touch of uh, Talia, who, by the way, Rob, you called about three or four episodes ago as being as being this kind of exact, not quite, not quite exactly, but that she was going to be significant mm. during the death of Viserys episode. You called that a few episodes ago. Um, but I liked this. Obviously, it was revealed last episode that she's kind of a bit of a, um, 
spy for uh, Mazaria. That was the um, route I wasn't expecting. Mine was my prediction was a little off. I think I was kind of right, but I think I thought that now to kind of now it's all out in the open. I thought she was going to be the person to find Viserys. Yeah. And then go straight to Alicent with the news. And then there was going to be some kind of like, well, we need to keep Talia under lock and key, but in a yeah. nice yeah. way. But like, and that's ended up not happening. They've given her more dimension, actually. They've given her more agency. You know, she is a she is an actual spy working for somebody. And that's cool. Yeah. yeah. And I liked the touch of her, like, lighting the candles in the window, like, to send the message yeah, to Miss Arya that, that the king is dead. Um, so that it's like, it's only a few, it's only a, not long after that when Miss Arya appears talking to Eric, or Eric and is like, oh, the king's dead. And they're like, what? <laughs> Sometime last night we misplaced our drinking companion. Knowing that he has been in the past a patron of your fine establishment, we thought to inquire here as to his whereabouts. And describe him. That is a delicate matter. You see, the man we seek is the young Prince Agon. I may trust, I hope, in the discretion of your trade. The Prince is not here. Has he been here? Earlier, perhaps? Quite a bit earlier. Years ago, in fact. But more recently. He does not frequent the street of silk. His tastes are known to be less discriminating. Meaning what? I wish you luck, good sir. In part two, while searching for Egon, Eamon tells Sir Criston that he feels he would be better suited to uh, sit on the Iron Throne. Aegon had previously expressed doubts about how much he actually uh, wanted to assume his father's throne. In the throne room, Otto informs the nobility that Viserys is dead and that Aegon will be assuming the Iron Throne. Two lords refuse to bend the knee, uh, while Lord Caswell pretends to bend the knee before attempting to flee the city. Larys Strong sends men to retrieve him and Lord Caswell is subsequently hanged for treason. In the Red Keep, Alicent meets with Rhaenys and attempts to bring her to the green side, but Rhaenys kind of refuses. Uh, meanwhile, elsewhere in the city, the Cargill twins follow Aegon's steps to an underground establishment where children are forced to fight one another. Once there, they discover that Aegon has fathered and abandoned at least one bastard child. Um, kind of like the smallest bit of the episode in terms of plot content, I suppose. But, um, Lizzie, what have you got about this kind of, this, this chase into, in this kind of walking chase so as to not arouse suspicion? Um, it brought to mind, like, you know, mid-season one Game of Thrones, where it is, like, murder Ned wrote, and he's yeah. sort of wandering around looking for clues, like, like it's Shenmue or something. Um, Who killed John Arryn? Who yeah. killed John Arryn and why? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it felt it felt a bit like that. Um, but the problem is, it kind of the outcome felt inevitable. They were obviously going to find Egon in some kind of drunken stupor. So, again, as much as you know, this isn't it's not terrible, but it, it felt predictable and it went on for quite a long time. But, you know, I do, like I've mentioned before, I do like when they go into the little underbelly of King's Landing and they like they, they visit the brothels and 
obviously the the establishment where the children are forced to fight, which is it's not fun, but it's it's another little layer to the city as its own kind of character. Mm. Um, I also, I guess I just want to repeat the meme. I may be a homophobe, but I'm no oathbreaker. <laughs> <laughs> if you know, you know. Uh, Jay, what about you? Um, I, I totally agree about the King's Landing. Like, as a character thing, I always lo- I've liked when this show so far has gone out into the city and kind of into the into the trenches. I really like that. Um the the, the, I like the Lord Caswell thing I, again. It's another rewatch bonus that 100 percent most people will have forgotten that we met him a few episodes ago. Um, he, in the book, he has a he has a lady wife who left behind who might potentially become apparent in season two. Maybe that's why he's here. He might just be here as a cautionary tale to show like the lengths that the Greens will go to mm. to try and you know get people on their side. But um, yeah, he is the a Lord of a of a of a place um that which might come up in season two maybe we'll have to see um the whole going through the city thing although i liked those bits and i liked the kind of the horrors of the like the fighting pit and the kind of like hey hey on my house and bastards that might come up later um the the whole kind of chase of them both kind of the two different parties going for them felt a little bit contrived um, it was useful in the end because you then eventually have um, Eric and Eric kind of fighting with each other. But um, yeah, I don't know what you guys thought of the, that kind of like chase in particular. It seemed a bit contrived to me. Well, yeah, first of all, Lizzie, I just want to repeat your shout out and say hello to Sophie's dad from Pizza. <laughs> um, I cannot believe that of all the places that guy popped up, it was in the ninth episode of House of the Dragon. <laughs> I know. Oh, dear. Um, Eamon, uh, so this is something that somebody spotted on Twitter, by the way. Uh, Eamon and Sir Kristen were basically cosplaying as Damon and Rhaenyra from the time when they went into the city undercover. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, which that's I thought cool. was pretty funny. Um, yeah, poor Lord Caswell. That's a, that's a shame, I suppose. Um, I, I know <laughs> what you mean about him being maybe more of a cautionary tale, because, like, if they do the second season in the way that, like, they've got to cut stuff out of the book, we could be there for a long time. <laughs> like, mm. in season two, it could go it's around true. in circles around the uh, around the different parts of Westeros and stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, um, the I kind of like it, the Cargill plus Eamon and Kristen chase, like, moving through the city like it's a race, like, you know... I like how the first half of the episode kind of moves very lin- it moves in a really linear fashion from like moment to moment and it's like you know this secret it begins to like ripple out and like you know by the, until the point where you know they seize Egon and they find him and like it, it's a little bit sort of later and there's that that kind of fight in the square where like there's loads of people out there and it's like how how long are you going to keep this a secret that like Egon and is is a proper weirdo who doesn't want to rule like there's all this <laughs> there's all this talk about Egon you know like the brothel keepers and like the underground yeah, yeah. F- fighting ringleaders and stuff they're all very much aware that like Egon is a weirdo that hangs around in these places that like you know 
rapes uh, maidens called Diana from the previous episode and likes to watch mm. children fight, fathers bastard children and then abandons them, has no real want to rule. Like, he's a bit of a weird outcast, almost. He likes to wake up, you know, still drunk under a table and just sort of, you know, sort of wander back to the Red Keep a little bit. It's like, it, I, I, I'm, I'm finding this character that they're building with Aegon quite interesting because it's yeah. like oh and this is him being king and then like in the final scene where like he's waving the sword around and it's like oh shit like the one good thing what about him is that he wasn't keen on being king <laughs> but now he seems to relish it so it's like all of his shit qualities given power and it's like oh fuck but all this talk about Aegon, I think it says a lot about what this show has sort of been from the beginning and what it's always tried to do. I don't think it's a keen focus of the show, but it just kind of crops up every now and again. And it's fairly prominent, but not in a way where you think, like, I don't know if maybe the writers are kind of consciously trying to put as many of these scenes in as possible or whether it just kind of happens organically because of the story. But um, this, I, I, th- I think I mentioned this when at the start of episode 7 or was it a little bit earlier than that when Viserys went to Driftmark and they were all talking about Damon's wife dying, that was episode 5 they were all talking about Damon's wife being killed or dying and stuff and everybody in the room knows what's happened with Damon and his wife because they all look at each other but then the conversation just carries on as if they're just forgetting that piece of information and we, we, we must, we're saying the things that we must say so that the courtly proceedings can carry on and there's no distractions mm-hmm. and we can just sort of carry on. And all the way that people talk about Aegon in this episode and like Alison knowing what she knows about Aegon and then even in the last episode saying like, you're no son of mine and things like this. But they all just, they all know that Aegon's a weirdo who should be nowhere near the Iron Throne. And even Aemon says it aloud, like, I deserve yeah. to be on the throne and he doesn't. But they all mm-hmm. just kind of carry on anyway because it's, oh, it's, it's what we're supposed to be doing, isn't it? And it just is this idea that, like, the people at the top, they don't really have a clue what they're doing. They're just doing what they think they're supposed to be doing based on how they think they're going to be perceived if they don't. And like, we, we must do this because if we don't do this, then that will happen. And that is much worse than this. This is bad. And it, it's another trolley problem that they just kind of ignore. And it's like, yeah, fine, whatever. La, 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 you know, fingers in their ears kind of thing. And they just sort of carry on as if we, we know all of these horrible things about him. But uh, we'll put him on the throne anyway because that's what we've all agreed to, isn't it? Yes, it's a, it's yeah. a status quo thing, isn't it? It's like a it, you're trying to maintain. Plus, you've got people who have stakes in the system being as it is. You've got people who have risen to the top because of the way it's structured, mm. um, and they want to maintain that. And it's kind of you never. It, most people don't think to question that, and so it's kind of plus also like especially when you think of the Aegon stuff, and I think it's a it was obviously outright a theme in game of thrones but it's still being a theme all the way through house of the dragon is that um i forget the exact words para- i'm paraphrasing but it's that Tyrion quote of the um 
we're all puppets dancing on the strings of our mothers and fathers mm. like that's that's really stark to me in this episode because as you say there's someone who does not want to be king who is being forced into it because of tradition because of the status quo and yet what's that what's that going to cause it's just going to cause him to pass that on to whatever comes after him mm. and it's kind of kind of the, the ongoing tragedy of this whole of this whole story yeah nobody wants to break the cycle i think this ultimately was why i initially wasn't that keen on anything other than game of thrones existing in the game of thrones world because i the whole thing with martin's story is that history maybe doesn't repeat itself but it rhymes at least yeah people Mm. don't learn the cycle continues i always i got a lot out of the game of thrones ending because i thought that like it reminded me a lot of how the last I'm not going to go into specifics, but if you've not seen the end of The Sopranos, then I apologize. But, like, the first half of the last season of The Sopranos kind of makes the case that some of the characters have a better life away from all of the habits that they've lived through. And, like, you know, they can learn. They can go and be something better, and they can go and do something else. But then the second half of the season makes the point that, no, like, the, the habits you know, old habits die hard and they can't learn, they can't progress. They just go back to being their horrible selves and they don't learn. And I kind of see that with the end of Game of Thrones as well, where it's like they kill the White Walkers and it's like, oh, Arya has given humanity a second chance. Isn't this wonderful? And then like three episodes later, it's like, oh, yeah, we didn't really learn anything, did we? Because we couldn't learn because our parents kind of, put us in this position you know it's like the inherited scars of war or inherited scars of your parents wars never really learning never really moving on and this show feels like it's carrying that on um it's kind of something that rainice in her scene with alison kind of alludes to where it's this idea that like alison isn't really going to be free she's just going to build a window in a prison where it's like she, she it's where she's like she's kind of trapped in this prison that's been built by her father and she thinks oh i'm i'm, I'm running against him now surely you know join our side we can you know rainies we can guide them um and then rainies is like ah child like again like she was in the past in previous episodes where she's how many yeah. times she's had to go that is the order of things. And it's the order of things, I guess, that is uh, coming to the fore again. Maybe, I, f- I feel like when we go back through this, there'll be lines like that, like, because that is the order of things. It will stick out massively based on what we watch. Yeah, definitely. Mm. And I yeah. think, yeah, the re- the rainy scene, I liked a lot. I mean, I've liked her the whole way through. I've made that clear. But it's, if for her, it's very clearly like a, it's, it's a crossing the Rubicon moment. She's kind of deciding in that scene, okay, I've kind of, been at the back trying to give my opinions and thoughts based on my you know my knowledge and history of what the what's happened to me and it's like oh, now i've got to actually do something and i think it does the obviously people have complained about the the final scene i think this that scene does do enough like work to justify the dragon pit um events for me anyway yeah um i'll talk about it a little bit more but yeah i think this the way this scene goes down greatly informs how the dragon pit scene goes down as well yeah whatever our differences our hearts remain as one oh our hearts were never one i see that now rather i've been a piece that you moved about the board 
If that is true, then I made you queen of the seven kingdoms. <laughs> Would you have desired it otherwise? How could I know? I wanted whatever you impressed upon me to want. And now the debt comes to you. A debt you are happy enough to pay. A sacrifice. A sacrifice made for the stability of the realm. No king has ever lived that hasn't had to forfeit the lives of a few to protect the many, though I understand your squeamishness. Reluctance to murder is not a weakness. In part three of the episode, Otto meets with Missaria, who is revealed as the White Worm. Missaria gives away Egon's location and the Cargills finally locate him. However, they are intercepted by Sir Criston and Aemond, who retrieve him for Alicent instead. During the fight, Sir Eric leaves his brother's side. Alicent and Otto uh, discuss the events of the day. She is angry with Otto for conspiring behind her back and says that she now has Egon, so terms of surrender will be sent to Rhaenyra as opposed to the assassins that Otto would have sent. Alicent then visits Laris Strong, who only promises to let her know about Missaria's extensive spy network in the Red Keep if she shows him her feet. He then offers to have Missaria killed and her house is set on fire shortly afterwards. Um... I didn't know that it was her house that was set on fire. That was one moment of the episode where okay. I thought, like, who, why is that on fire? Who's in the cloak? What's going on there? That was, a, that was the only moment of genuine confusion for me in the episode. <laughs> I didn't not recognise that either. Yeah. I was so distracted by the other bigger events happening that once it finished, I, I just forgot. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot to interrogate that a little bit closer. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lizzie, how do we feel about uh, Missaria's appearance in this episode? Yeah, Missaria is kind of... I feel bad for saying it. She's a character I always forget about because there's just... I think because there's so much going on with the Greens and the Blacks and all these like larger-than-life characters, like people who couldn't possibly exist in the real world but surely do, it, it's kind of... I sort of forget that Misari is there because she does just like she's kind of a snake in the grass, like moving without detection. But I think we're finally starting to see that storyline kind of come to the fore, and I've, I think it's probably the perfect time because we've not got this, you know, who's going to take over the throne thing going on. We know that now, but we can sort of focus on other things and. Income from Saria, perfect timing. Mm. It's, it's strange that you've forgotten about uh, Miss Saria because I, I cannot forget that fucking accent. I just, I can't. <laughs> it's just terrible. I don't know why they're making her do it. I, I just, I don't <laughs> understand what they think the benefit was. I, I, I really, really am trying to like. I, I always, 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 always give creative people the benefit of the doubt, but like. Why can't the actress just talk in her normal voice? Like, it's it's why? it's the over it's the over enunciation of things and like talking slightly slower than she probably would if she was being more natural. I can't say that I've noticed. Hard to hard to it's so hard to like it's easy to follow. You know what she's saying, but it's it's kind of like yeah, just the cadence is quite sludgy and it. It's kind of like I feel like I'm having to like focus more. Yeah, <laughs> it's not that distracting, but it is there. I don't know, it just feels a bit like 
It just feels a bit offensive. Like, it just, it doesn't feel like an accent. It's just like, you know how sometimes in TV shows they'll have foreign characters who just have the voice. And it's just like, oh, well, they're not from America, so they sound like this. And it's just, it. that's kind of how it feels in this, where it's like, well, then she's not from Westeros, so we'll just have her sound like, uh, I don't know, this. And it's like they just made an accent up. And, like, I mean, of course <laughs> they're just making an accent up because it's a fucking fictional world. But, like, they've got to dilute it or something. Just make it sound normal. Make it sound <laughs> human. Like, don't make the actress, like, bend her mouth around her words in that way. I just, yeah, I, I'm really, um, I'm quite happy for you, Lizzie, that you're not noticing it, actually, because... When I notice it, I probably it just... will now. Well, now you've pointed <laughs> yeah. it out. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've ruined it. But um, yeah, um, I think this is a decent part of the episode, though. Um, I think the, the the it's another part of the episode, really. The 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 foot scene that's kind of freaked everybody out. I'm kind of curious to see what you both feel about that. Yeah, I'd, I'd hard cut it out. Like just take a pair of scissors. I know we don't make film like that anymore, but <laughs> take a pair of scissors to the film and just cut it straight out. Take it's, a pair of scissors to the Mac and <laughs> yeah, cut it right out. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it just seemed really just silly to me. Like it's so like yeah, it's just uncomfortable, but not really in a good way. It didn't really it doesn't really inform either of their characters really, other than like a really kind of basic kind of offensive oh he has a club foot and that means he has a thing for feet it didn't didn't work for me (laughs) like people are allowed to just have motives without them being like like people in the real world just want power right that's a thing that happens yeah it doesn't have to have some kind of strange specific connotation yeah i don't know it didn't work for me yeah i don't mind it as such and i think it adds a slightly interesting dynamic to their relationship that like the way that he's using Alison for his own gain has clearly gone beyond levels where like you know he he is you know he's more in control of that dynamic because he knows that he has information she doesn't and she just kind of gives in and even though she's queen she's not the most powerful person in the room and stuff like that but yeah i think the the line from having a club foot to having a foot fetish is a bit basic. Yeah. It feels a little... I don't know. I would have preferred it to be something else. Like, maybe something even a bit more straightforward. Like, you know, still, if you want to keep the sexual thing in, then that's fine. But, like, maybe have it more straightforward rather than, like... Because it... I don't know. It just doesn't really add much of a layer to him as such. And I didn't... no. I felt like I'm not normally one to say this because I'm normally like, fine, if you want to show a sex scene or a sexual assault scene or something like that, or, you know, if you want to push the barrier a little bit with, like, what can be shown on TV, then that's fine. But I got the implication. I understood perfectly what was happening. I didn't need to see him masturbating under his trousers while she sat there with a glum face. Like, I'm not not because I'm squeamish about this kind of stuff. It's just more like okay, this scene has gone on for, like, 15 seconds longer than it needed to. It was more of a pacing issue for me. More of, like, it was hammering home a point I already knew um, in, in that sort of sense. But I did did sort of let sit this afternoon and sort of think about it, and I was laughing to myself. You know that Twitter account, um, Riker Googling, where it's um, Riker oh, from no, Star Trek but... um, yeah, Googling I follow a similar things, one. Yeah, 
And so if, if you were to be... Um, if you if, if you were to make one that was like Larry Strong googling it, it'd just be Alison Hightower feet pics, um, or Alison <laughs> Hightower feet. Like whenever you type in a female celebrity's name, feet is always the thing that seems to come up first. Um, so there's a joke about that. Um, <laughs> um, the other thing as well, and it's kind of I want to address another complaint that people have kind of had about this episode that like, oh, how, how did Alison not know or like. How did Alison not twig on earlier that this is what her dad was doing? And it's like, from like the first episode of the show, as like I've been describing Otto as Littlefinger if he had a daughter to pimp out. And it's like, yeah, that's kind of what he's been doing. He's been grooming her for this all along. And that's the big realization for Alison in this episode that what's actually been happening is that she's not necessarily being raised for power and raised to rule by Otto, she's being pimped out by Otto so that he can have his own version of events. Like, so he can crown Aegon in the way that he sees fit, and he can deal with challenges to the throne in the way that he sees fit. Not, oh, I want the best for my daughter, it's, I want the best for me. And my daughter is also there, and I guess I could use her as a chess piece. And the one time he actually compliments her in this episode, it's already far too late where he says, like, you look like your mother in certain lights. And, oh, great. Thanks, Dad. You know? Yeah, thanks, Dad. Cheers. Yeah. The one nice thing you've said to me in 20 years. Thanks a lot. Have the decency to look grateful. Do you know what has been done to give you this day? In an hour, you will be king. And my father never wanted this. That's not true. He had 20 years to name the heir and never did. Steadfastly, he upheld Veneer's claim. He changed his mind. Wow. <laughs> he could have, but he never did. Because he didn't like me. And yet, with his final breath, he whispered to me that you should take his place for the throne. In the final part of the episode, Sir Eric Cargill attempts to escort Rhaenys out of the city in secret, but the pair are separated in a crowd when news of Aegon's coronation begins to spread throughout the city. On the way to the coronation, Alicent tells Aegon that Viserys wished for him to be king, and that he must respect his father's wishes by agreeing to not have his sister Rhaenyra killed. At the Dragon Pit, Aegon is crowned Lord of the Seven Kingdoms and second of his name, and appears to be uh, enjoying the feeling of being king. As he turns to the massive crowd, waving his sword in celebration, Rhaenys uh, slips away into the tunnels underneath the dragon pit. Rhaenys and her dragon, Maelys, then burst up through the floor, killing dozens of common folk in the process. Maelys roars at the greens, but does not breathe fire on them. Rhaenys then turns Maelys around and flies out of the dragon pit towards Dragonstone. Uh, okay, so it's the big coronation. Woo! Uh, Lizzie, what do we make of this, this this whole ceremony and the set piece? It sounded like you really liked it, so have the floor. Well, I mean, I've, I like the ending, but I think it's kind of a given. You know, it's Renish showing up on a big fucking dragon. Of course I like it. <laughs> um, there, and there are some questions that come of it, and I'm sure there are answers to those questions. But... Yeah, I thought that the sort of crowd filtering in worked really well. You know, like the news just sort of seeping out of what's about to happen. I think Aegon's kind of moment of, you know, getting a taste of power and 
quite liking it. it was actually like in a weird way it was quite sweet i know it shouldn't be but it's like mm. ah he's he's overcome his anxiety about being a king and That's having just... control over hundreds of millions of people and <laughs> being able to enact his horrific lifestyle upon them as he so wishes but um yeah the main event obviously really showing up on the dragon just bursting up the floor like like you say killing dozens of innocent folk in the process it, it shouldn't be like a yay moment because it's horrible it like like we've said so many times before it's the wheel keeps turning and there's a moment where you think you know, maybe she'll just finish them all off and that'll be it. But of course, this is a television show and that would do away with about half the cast and wouldn't make any sense. So she doesn't. <laughs> and all it's kind of left with is this question of, well, why didn't she? Why didn't she do that? Is it just a case of keeping your friends close and your enemies closer or... Is she not quite sure where her allegiances lie just yet? Hmm. Jay, what's your reading of all this? For me, it's 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 kind of just a basic kind of like, well, she doesn't want to just turn into a mass murderer. I know she has accidentally, and again, that's something that you know <laughs> we should all keep in mind. Like yeah. that's it's the episode is very is very specific about that. Um, I saw someone on the Song of Ice and Fire subreddit say it better than i than i did and it kind of informed me where they kind of said someone was complaining about it and someone said listen you you've got to understand rainice hasn't read the book she doesn't know what might come she doesn't know the horrors that are going to come from her Mm -hmm. not killing all of these characters right now (laughs) and having things spiral out of control and war and whatnot she's a character who is in that moment caught between i need to go away and get out of here or I'll die. And on the other hand, hang on, I have a. I, do I want to get revenge on these people who are usurped? You know, the throne from. Um, what is she to Rhaenyra? A f- aunt? An auntie, aunt? yeah, I guess. Auntie, yeah. Um, like caught between those things, and at the end of the day, she's within the context of the nobility and everything. She's not a mass murderer, so she doesn't just want to just melt them all. So she's like, you know what? I'll just, uh, I'll, you know these are family members and stuff and they, they can they can be left to their own devices i'm going to go home i'm going to get sorted um and i kind of like that i think it's it's a completely earned moment um yeah it was and it was a lot of fun to watch and as you said lizzie like it, it's 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 that weird combination of a yes rainy son of dragon hell yeah oh god those shots <laughs> those shots of that tail swinging yeah. back and forward oh whoops okay maybe not <laughs> <laughs> um yeah i thought it was a really good piece to end the episode on um and as i said earlier it's kind of like i think maybe people might have been expecting something a little bit more explosive um but this isn't game of thrones and it's not it doesn't seem to want to be structured that way um so she kind of yeah flies off to to leave it to sometime in the future mm. from the from the top i think like the whole thing is like a great set piece like the the dragon pit set and like the crowd and the horns and the pomp and the spectacle and like yeah, you know we've definitely. just all in the uk especially we've just sat through a big royal ceremony for the you know that like dragged on for like a week 
And so, you know, when a monarch dies, you know, we, we all kind of know what it's like and how many people are, you know, basically kind of not necessarily forced by the hand, but sort of like, you know, forced by media to grieve and to flock to the thr- flock to the coffin in great numbers and things like this. Yeah. And, and so, you know, I think it captures that feeling pretty well, um, where it's like, you know, Otto's like, it is a sad day. You know, Viserys, the peaceful, has passed on and is dead and all of this. Ha ah, but, you know, and so they, they, do it, they do it a lot faster than we do, uh, you know, because we, we've got to wait about six or seven months to have a new king. Um, well, I mean, we, we have the king, but they've not done his whole coronation thing yet. So it's yeah, yeah there's, there's, there's no 12-hour queues here to see a box. No. No, I didn't spot um, David Beckham in that crowd anywhere. No. Uh, queuing up with everybody. <laughs> or Philip Schofield and Holly Willoughby. Uh, at the skipping. front, inexplicably, yeah. Yeah, at the front. With queue jumper bands. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, God, I'm just imagining, like, Rainice going, you know, and she sneaks down that stairs and she bumps into Phil and Holly on the way to the front. Like, <laughs> <laughs> shit, been, we've been exposed. But, yeah, the, the moment that Rhaenyra comes through the floor... Um, my actual it's so weird to like have to be defending a scene that i wasn't that keen on because like i feel like i'm not keen on it for completely different reasons to most people where like i'm not keen on it well i'm saying i'm not keen on it i like it but just a lot less than the rest of the episode because i thought that the episode was going to commit to being like a fully dialogue and expression driven episode where like the drama was created between what happens between people. Like a lot of the show has been so far. An episode like Driftmark, but just in King's Landing, I've really liked how and appreciated um, this is a benefit of having a slightly larger writer's room. That um, This was something that was pointed out to me about midway through the season, and when I thought about it, it really made a lot of sense, which is like, this is about as close to episodic storytelling that a serialized show can get without being you know, something like case of the week kind of show because each episode has had like a, a central point. Like it hasn't been like Game of Thrones where it was like an ongoing soap opera with lots of interconnecting and overlapping storylines and stuff. You know, it's like, um, you know, in, in episode seven, it was all about, oh, it was all about what happened on Driftmark this time. And then in episode eight, it was all about what happened in the last 24 hours of King Viserys's life. And now this episode is all about like, how do we manage the succession? And like, it's all very kind of, you know, and they've cut certain characters out for the first time. Little things like this. And so I thought like, great, great. On its own, as an individual episode, it's all about just kind of talking in small council rooms and watching this secret kind of bleed out through the city as more and more people realize and the, you know, they try and squash the secret, but it can't stay squashed forever and stuff. I was like, yeah, that's a great idea. But then I feel like they maybe got cold feet about finishing the episode, like somewhere along the writing process. They maybe got a little bit like, hmm, should we do a dragon scene? We haven't had a dragon (laughs) scene in the show for a while. Should probably do one, (laughs) shouldn't we? And so this was the idea they came up with. And I kind of wish they hadn't done it. I wish they'd reined themselves in a little bit. I wish they'd withheld it and just held their nerve. But what we get is it, I, it makes complete sense to me. I just don't understand. Like, I mean, I, I, I can understand people disliking it. That's fine. If you think that it's not appropriate for Rhaenys' character to be doing something like this, you know, kind of massacring small folk after we've been, you know, uh, instructed to kind of like her by the previous seven or eight episodes, then yeah, okay, that makes total sense to me and that's fine. Um, 
if you think that Rhaenys in that situation should instead just burn the greens alive because that's the you know it's the trolley problem of the episode and that's the more sensible thing to do then okay that's fine but like people have really gone overboard with this like to the point where like you know poor old Sarah Hess like she's not really been on Twitter for like well basically since that wedding episode that she wrote um and like she's turned off her direct messages on Twitter and like you know she she appears on inside the episode sort of saying like oh you know she'll say something like I don't understand how Damon's become such a popular character for people because he's not very nice and then everyone just kind of attacks her for it and like she's done this interview where like she said this is Game of Thrones the the small folk don't count or something like that and she said it that way because that's how Rhaenys is feeling in that yeah. moment yeah. it's like the small folk don't matter but a lot of people have taken it as if to say like oh she doesn't even care about the small folk in the world that she's writing it's like no stop taking it deliberately out of context just to get like 20 likes on twitter from people that you don't know like try and try and engage try and engage like this is something i've found a bit well it was the most annoying aspect of like the reaction to the end of Game of Thrones, where it's like people disliking the end of Game of Thrones is completely fine to me because it's just an opinion and it doesn't change my reading of the show and I really liked it and it's never going to change and so technically I win. But <laughs> it, it was something I think I've said to you before, Lizzie, and I've written it in articles and I've mentioned it on social media and I feel like I've got it down to like my issue with the reaction to the end of Game of Thrones was people were too busy pointing the finger and saying like, how dare Benioff and Weiss do that instead of putting that finger under their chin and going, why did they do that? And if you ask yourself, why has a creative decision been made, as opposed to how dare that creative decision get made, you get way more interested answers. Like, why have Rainies come up through the floor of the dragon pit and mm. kill loads of people, sort of by accident, but also not really? Like, she's aware of what she's about to do. And, you know, we've been instructed to like her and admire Rhaenys over the course of the show so far. And now we're just seeing her slaughtering dozens of people. And how, how dare they do that? And it's like, well, no, it's like, why? It, it might have a point. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah. again, this is what I meant about, like, people talking about the show as if it's just an accident that, that just poofed into existence and not something yeah. that was laboured over for weeks and months. There are very explicit yeah. shots of that dragon tail swatting people to death in a big crowd. And you hear people screaming and people running and panicking. And then there's a there's nearly a crush because of this. And it's like, you know, it, it, these shots don't happen in real time. Like, you know, they take fucking ages to put together. Do you don't think that the writers thought about the implications of this and maybe wanted us to feel that way? Like... Yeah, we like Rhaenys, but she's still the aristocracy. She's still part of the wheel. She's still part of, you know, she still desires power in, in a way. You know, she still wants to play these kinds of games. She still believes in the illusion of the Game of Thrones. And, and you know, and in that moment, she decides that, yeah, it is sort of worth it for all of these people to die um, so that I can just kind of make a bit of a silent declaration of war against the greens and that i think is what is going through her head where it, uh, and, and at the same time that scene with alicent that she had before she's probably thinking 
Alison kept me here under lock and key. They could have killed me, but they didn't. So I'll give them this one. This is their one chance where they get away with it. Where they see, like, it could have all ended in this moment. And I hope they remember that. That, like, I showed them mercy in this moment. It's a declaration of war, but it's also, like, uh, the writer Sarah Hess kind of said, like, it's not really her position to kill them. Like, she hasn't earned the right, I would, I would guess. You know, in her head, she's thinking, I've not really got a reason to kill them here. Other than, you know, like that person on that subreddit said, if she'd seen the future, then yes, we all would have done that. But, like, she doesn't know the future, so... Yeah, and it's like it's a it's it's a you know everything's a choice, and it's you know choice work for some people and work for other people, and it's also perfectly possible to, you know intent isn't execution, and you might think the execution's bad and blah blah blah. All all that's true, but for me, I mean, I can only we can only speak for ourselves. I do think that the legwork was done to make that ending work. I think both both in leading up to it and in what that act will lead to. Mm. Um, I think the like work was done, was has been done for it, and I think people will probably I don't know I feel like some people who are if anyone's bandwagoning I feel like they'll jump off the bandwagon <laughs> in like whatever it'll be <laughs> season three or season four or something when you know yeah. these cumulative decisions of hey let's go to war because of a family dispute guys well that might people not might not like that mm. and yeah for me it was laying the groundwork for that and it was it was good. Yeah, Lizzie, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I mean, first of all, I'm really glad that you've um, enjoyed the scene because I, I always feel very happy when I know that like this, that this, this is working for you as a, as a new viewer, as something of a, a newbie to this story. Like you're not really because you've watched Game of Thrones and you kind of know how the world works with mm-hmm. Westeros and stuff like that. But you know, like you're a totally new viewer who doesn't know where this is going, and like I'm glad that like you know. I mean, to be fair, this was a bit of a surprise for me and Jay as well, because this, this does not happen in the books. It's, it, Rhaenys still escapes King's Landing, but, like, not on the dragonback after killing about 50 people. <laughs> you know, it's, um, it's, it's a little more... Um, well, it, it's a little less bloody than that, but, um, but I'm, I'm really glad that, like, you've kind of sat with it. And, but again, I guess, it, again, it's just because, like, you don't watch this, like, on tenterhooks waiting for characters to do things that you can shout about. Like, you just kind of, you just no. consume it like a normal person. <laughs> I dare say I almost watch it passively, as in it just, it kind of just washes over me and it's like, okay, that was that. Yeah, I think that's probably the most ideal way to engage with this kind of story because I think this is the trap that some people fell into with Game of Thrones where it was like, there were the whole things like, who's going to win the Game of Thrones? I want this person to win the Game of Thrones. And it's like... Uh, it's a no. piece of fiction. Who gives a fuck? <laughs> like, that's my stance on it. Yeah, as George R. R. Martin said, we're just making this shit up. But also, yeah, what, like... Yeah, watch wrestling for 20 years, then you will stop caring about who's on the thrown by the end of it (laughs) you'll just you'll just get made like bitter towards the world and no decision will be good and you will you will grow to like it (laughs) and you'll hate roman reigns and it'll be fine yeah of course (laughs) the wheel will keep turning yeah the wheel will keep turning but i think the other thing as well is like um sean collins who's like a writer for rolling stone like he made the point that like at the end of game of thrones sansa 
a character that we have grown to really love and admire, whose personal battles we have followed every step of the way, and we've really sympathised with her, and we've loved her, and we've felt pain with her, and all of this, she laughs at the idea of democracy. And this is another one of those moments where it's a sobering reminder that we're watching nobility, we're watching the aristocracy, we are watching people who are comfortable with the system that allows common people to be crushed under the weight of a dragon. This yeah. was something, I don't really see this scene as any different to, is it in the third or fourth episode where that soldier is screaming out for Damon, oh, hail Prince Damon, hail Prince Damon, here I am Damon, come and rescue me. And then Karaxi's foot just crushes him to death and Damon yeah. doesn't even know that he exists. And yeah. this is kind of like that. Where, like, these people are comfortable with the wheel turning. They believe in the illusion of the Game of Thrones. And I think that's more than fine to draw attention to that. And if people are personally offended to the point where, like, they're starting to attack people on... Did you you know there's a petition to have Sarah Hess removed from the writing staff for season two? Oh, fuck off. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, it's that. It's it's reached that level. And it, it only took nine episodes for us to get here, so... Bloody so hell. stupid. I've I've blocked and muted more people on Twitter this week than I think I ever have in my life because it's just like I'm not I'm, I'm just not entertaining it. I'm not even laughing at it anymore. I'm just bored of it. I'm yeah, jaded. I, mean, I didn't even know about it until tonight. I'm just like, grow up. Yeah. <laughs> and like, uh, just going back to Rainey's a second, she could she could well claim, well, I didn't kill those people. The dragon did. <laughs> or like, you know, maybe the Greens did. You know, like because they forced uh, me into this situation, and like, yeah, ah, the trolley, the trolley, yeah, it's like <laughs> the wheel on the trolley goes round and round, but yeah. Um, Which one <laughs> will they kill? <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Anyway, Lizzie, I want your line of the episode. Uh, my line of the episode is from my niece, who says, "Have you never imagined yourself on the Iron Throne?" I'm sure she has. Yes. Well, uh, who is your loser? This week, it's hard to pick an individual loser this week, but I'll go with Otto Hightower. Yeah, for all of his scheming. Yeah, I feel like Otto is kind of like the single strongest example of the real enemy of the show, which is the patriarchy or mm-hmm. the system. That's like the overarching enemy of the show, if you will, the more existential threat, and he seems to have distilled quite a lot of it into him. Unfortunately. Oh yes. Great performance by Reese Ifans, though. Really, really wonderful. Yeah. Um, the winner of the Green Council, who is it? My winner of the week is Rainice. Okay. Well, we will see you next week for the finale. We're, oh, God. We're almost there. Un- unbelievable. Um, it's entitled The Black Queen. Um, and we look forward to discussing it. Please all behave yourselves in the meantime. Yeah, please do. <laughs> no, pull that petition Bar- down. Yes, pull the petition Stop down. It. And as, as Shireen Baratheon said when she was asked by Stannis Baratheon in Season 5, Episode 9 of Game of Thrones, who would you have chosen, Rhaenyra or Aegon? She said, I wouldn't have chosen anyone because it was all the choosing sides that made things so horrible. Bear that in mind. Indeed. <laughs> and we'll see you next week. <laughs> see ya. Bye-bye.